Well, welcome to the Hunchback Country Podcast. This is episode number 394, and our guest today is Jaden Quinlan. He is the lead ballistician from Hornady, and as a ballistics expert who has been in the industry for quite some time, I was curious to speak with Jaden about what are the things he doesn't quite fully understand or know, or to put it another way, what are the things that still keep him up at night? Like what mysteries is he still trying to solve? Uh, what unknowns or variables can he not fully explain as it relates to the specific world and performance of rifles and bullets and ballistics? And so we talk about that today. We also dive into just some very practical stuff as well, especially as it relates to reloading, uh, the things that do and don't make a difference the things that do and don't really matter for someone like myself, who is primarily a hunter, but also just enjoys shooting and reloading as well. So this is both kind of high level, um, big picture stuff, as well as some nitty gritty details that may help you out as a shooter and or reloader. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As always, if you have questions for us, send an email to podcast at xomountaincare.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message. While you're in the show description, you can also check out links to follow Hornady's podcast, which has been a great one, as well as our previous episodes with Jaden about the terminal performance of bullets a few years ago, and then a recent episode with Hornady's Seth Swerzik where we talked about backwards thinking and ballistics. So check out those episodes as well if you haven't already. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with Jaden. Well, Jaden, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing good, Mark. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me back. It's been a little while. It has. We were just chatting before we hit record. It's been basically right at about two years. Um, we chatted with you last on the podcast in February of 2021. Uh, that episode was episode 267, and the title was Hunting Lethality, How Do Animals Die? Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, when I went back to look at the date of that podcast and you knew that's the topic we covered but i was like man i want to go back and listen to that one again yeah um, that was that was a fun one yeah uh, hopefully you got uh, some good feedback from your listeners yeah we did for sure well I, I would point people to that if they haven't checked it out or haven't listened to it in two years and want to check it out again and we talked more about your background and did a uh, an introduction there but give us the the quick recap for listeners who are new to who you are, what you do, and what your background is. We can keep it pretty brief, but just let people know who you are. Okay. Um, Yeah. So my name is Jaden Quinlan. I'm the senior ballistician at Hornady Manufacturing. Um, So I'm part of a team that uh, is tasked with research and development, whether that's the the bullet, the projectile itself, um, ammunition, cartridge design. Um, We do work in propellants, uh, kind of of the whole gambit um, that we're used to uh, you know, experiencing when we pull a trigger. Um, background wise, I grew up a rural kid on a farm in Colorado and, and grew up uh, shooting, shooting critters that cause problems, you know, prairie dogs and coyotes and stuff like that. And, and at that point kind of fell in love with the, I guess the aspects of ballistics that you can observe, you know, quite obviously. 
like bullet drop and wind and stuff like that. And, and, uh, to fast forward through many years, I am fortunate enough to be in a career field where I get to continue to learn and investigate and, and pursue that passion. So I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. When it comes to ballistics, I just want to lay a little bit of like foundational groundwork because we're going to probably get into some of the weeds and deeper topics today. But can you just kind of clarify the big picture on internal, external and terminal ballistics? And I know that we could talk for hours about that, but I just want to have that brief, hey, let's start here. Let's define what those things are so that we all kind of start with a base kind of foundation of knowledge a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, I was actually at a, at an event, uh, uh, last night with my wife and, and met a guy that uh, I'd never met before. And he asked what I do. And instead of saying I was a ballistician, um, I, I explained to him that in ballistics, there's the kind of the three realms that you laid out because it's not intuitive for, for folks to know. Um, but you have essentially three aspects of ballistics. There's internal ballistics, which is essentially everything that's happening, um, before the bullet leaves the muzzle. Um, so some people will define that from the point that the sear releases the firing pin or striker um, all the way to when the bullet, you know, leaves the muzzle. You could probably back that up even further, you know, feeding is a part of that, you know, and, and that whole system. But um, so that's internal. External is what happens to the bullet from the point that it leaves the muzzle to the point that it hits the target. So that's the bullet flight portion. Um, and then terminal ballistics is what happens to the bullet once it hits its target. And there's all kinds of different targets, you know, from from hunting to steel plates to pieces of paper to, to all kinds of stuff. I'd reached back out to you guys um, in part because I was like, I, I, I love learning about these topics. Um, and mm-hmm. obviously, personally, it's, it's uh, super cool for me to be able to reach out to you and have a conversation personally. A, a lot of that kind of was reinvigorated by the podcast that you guys have been doing with Hornady. Oh, cool. um, and part of what I wanted to do is make sure that our podcast audience was aware of all of the podcasts you guys have been putting out. And I'm sure that some are, but some aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but when did that start and kind of give like listeners just again, a big flyover of what you guys have been talking about? I think we're at a touch over a year now. Um, and it, it kind of started as I understand it as, as kind of a, just a project. Some of the guys in the marketing department wanted to do. Um, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I, I consume, that's primarily the audio I consume, you know, on my drive to work or uh, when I'm out doing chores or, or anything like that, I'm a huge fan of uh, listening to people. So I thought it was cool that we were going to do a podcast and, and was fortunate enough to, to make some appearances on there and get to, explain some, some of my passions, you know, in the ballistic stuff and, and be able to convey some things to folks that maybe hadn't been conveyed that way before. And I think we've had a, a good receipt um, from listeners on that. So yeah, it's been about a year. I think we're a little over 50 episodes. I know they, on the, you know, you were mentioning like the learning side of it. Um, I believe Preston put together a ballistic series, like on YouTube, you can find it. And that kind of Cause we do, it's a mix of, you know, we'll do like a really technical podcast where we talk about something and then, you know, the next one might be like an interview with a, a well-known hunter or competitive shooter or something. It's kind of just a mix of, of a bunch of different stuff of, of Hornady, you know, um, but the mm-hmm. technical ones, if, if you kind of are looking for that information, that's in the, the ballistic series that they put together. Yeah. Awesome. When I thought of talking with you again, 
uh, for our podcast, I had this idea of like, you know, you, you have this history of shooting your whole life. You've studied it from an education perspective. You've been working in ballistics professionally. Um, you have the resources to do research and development. And basically, I feel like you probably have as good of possible ability to investigate like what you want to know from a ballistics perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, like after all these years and all these resources and all this research you've done, like what do you still, I don't want to say not understand, but what do you still question? And then the way I thought of it is like, what keeps you up at night, right? Like what do you still not fully understand as it relates to ballistics? And so that's a question that I put your way of like, hey, what what still keeps you up at night? Like, what are you still trying to figure out? And one of the things you mentioned was velocity variability and why does that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the topic. Let's camp there for a bit, but okay. why, why did that come to mind for you? Well, it's, it's always there. Um, and, and the problem with the, the, the research and development in the ballistics field is that it's destructive testing meaning that when I fire that one cartridge, the, the next one I fire is not exactly what that one was. It's different in you know a bunch of different ways that I'm sure we'll talk about. But, but the fact that the nature of, of studying it is destructive means that you can never really pin it down and, and know for certain. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm because that one's gone. You're not going to get it back. You know, you can't repeat that one over and over and over again. You, you attempt to, um, by using the most consistent components you, you possibly can. Um, but even, even within that variation still exists. They're, they're all a little bit different. Each case is a little bit different. Each powder charge is, is a little bit different. Each bullet is, is different and to varying degrees, right? I mean, we, as a manufacturer, try to drive those variances down to the lowest level that we possibly can, but it's still always there. And, um, velocity variability is, I think, uniquely tough as well, because it's, it's all happening in that internal ballistic cycle that we talked about a little bit earlier on the definition of internal ballistics. And we can't, it's difficult to observe what's happening in there. There's certain things you can measure, you know, we measure muzzle velocity, you know, obviously with the, with the velocity variation, we observe that the velocity of each shot is not the same every time. Um, you know, we obviously have inf- instrumentation here to measure uh, pressure. So that's an additional data point that you can kind of get a clue of what's going on in there. But uh, I've said, I've said jokingly before that I wish I could uh, find like the, the honey, I shrunk the kids thing and shrink myself down. So where I could go sit inside the chamber and watch what was actually going on. Um, might be a little bit hot and, and high pressure, but, uh, <laughs> I would, I would absolutely love to do that. Um, because there, there's, there's so many things. It's such a dynamic event that's occurring in there. There's so many things that are happening independently. However, they are interconnected in a way where when, when thing A happens, it affects thing D, even though they're not right next to each other. And so it, it becomes difficult. We can see trends and, and, and stuff like that. But for, for you to show me a cartridge and, and, to, and ask me, okay, what velocity is this going to produce? I can't tell you that. 
you know, I, I, I just don't know. And so, you know, your, your framing of the subject of stuff that keeps me up at night is absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've lost a little bit of sleep over this stuff and, and not in a negative light. Um, it's, uh, it's still pursuing it in, in a, in a passionate way. You know, I really want to know why. Uh, and I think we're getting closer to that, but it's, there's still some mystery there. You know, we, we kick over rocks and, and find things under them that had no idea were there. That That is still happening to me, which is incredible considering the historical piece of everything that we know, you know, um, regardless, you know, you could look at just that internal ballistic cycle with velocity variability, you know, the, the things that we know about physics and thermodynamics and all these things, even with all of that knowledge, we still can't nail it down exactly. And so, um, that, that would be kind of a, a quick overview of why it still keeps me up at night. Yeah. One of the things I've appreciated on, on some of the podcasts I've heard from you guys is how you talk, how you, how you define things, right? So if we're talking about call it velocity variability, mm-hmm. helping to define what do we mean by variability, right? Is that just sure. a change in one feet per second from shot A to shot B? that were fired in sequence? Is it a change of a certain different threshold of say, okay, 20 shots or sorry, 20 feet per second across five shots? Is it a change of not shot to shot, but day to day across theoretically the same loaded ammunition and the same rifle, but under different days, different conditions, et cetera. So there's a lot we could talk about there, but I guess what I want to start with, if we talk about velocity variability and some people I could imagine heard you say, I don't know how fast this cartridge is, is going or that how fast this bullet is going to come out of this cartridge. They're probably like, yeah, you do. Right. Like within range, you know, right. If you have right, experience with range. it and yeah. yeah, within range. So yeah, let's start with what do you consider variable? Well, I, I think in this, you know, you're, you're exactly right. I a hundred percent agree that the, the definition of terms is very important. Um, so I think just in a, a simple use of the word variability, it means things are, are different. They're not the same every time. And there's, you know, kind of different, um, versions of that word. Like you get into variance and, and the use of the word variance gets you into the statistical realm. Um, but, but variability itself, the, the velocity that that bullet comes out of the muzzle at the muzzle velocity is not the same shot to shot to shot. Even when you try to make everything as perfectly the same as possible, um, there, it, it, it varies around and, and the amount that it varies and, and the reasons why it vary, um, there's a whole bunch of them. There's some of them that, that are known, uh, and, and are controllable by the shooter, you know, uh, or reloader or whatever it may be. Um, a lot of that is your, your primer and your propellant, um, the way those two things interact, I would say the propellant is the main driver of it. Um, uh, the cartridge itself, the cartridge case can play into it. You, you take uh, cartridge cases with wide amounts of variation and they will produce different results, um, pressure and, and velocity wise. Um, how the bullet leaves the case neck and engraves into the rifling is a, is a, is a critical part there. I think there's a lot of the variance that comes from that, um, that it happens differently shot to shot to shot. Um, the bullets dwell time in bore, you know, how much resistance is it or friction is it uh, encountering from the changes in bore condition? Because every time you shoot 
uh, every time you you shoot uh, around and that bullet goes down the barrel, the condition of that barrel is not exactly the same as it was before that shot was fired. So you're kind of always in a state of change. Um, some of it may not be severe enough that you can observe a difference, right? It's not as though as you continue shooting, your velocity will continue in a direction. Let's say it continues to get faster and faster and faster for every shot you fire because of the change of condition in bore. That's generally not the case in, in small cal stuff. Um, so meaning, you know, shoulder fired stuff that we're used to from, you know, 22 up to 50 BMG, uh, but there's, there's so much going on in there that, I mean, it, it kind of depends on which one you want to maybe dive into a little bit. So I, when I was thinking of just from my non-scientific, I'm not a ballistician. I'm just a hunter, somewhat shooter and reloader. I was, I sat down and was just like, all right, what are the variables that I can think of that could affect velocity variability? And you just mentioned some of them, but to rattle off my list, which again, I'm sure is not exhaustive or maybe not even some of these points being relevant. Mm -hmm. I thought of inconsistent charge weight, um, mm -hmm. inconsistent powder placement or like the powder column, essentially where is the powder positioned within the cartridge, especially if you had like a lower case fill ratio, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, inconsistent ignition primarily being the primer itself, which obviously again, ties to powder placement, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, inconsistent case capacity. So the quality of the brass, the sizing, the actual volume, the structure of the cartridge case itself, mm -hmm. um, inconsistent neck or bullet tension, inconsistent measurement or instrumentation. Like is the way that a hunter shooter is collecting velocity, are they, are they seeing variability represented correctly by the instrumentation they're using? Sure. Um, chamber dimensions, case expansion within that chamber, you know, cartridge fit to the chamber of your rifle, uh, the condition or of the chamber of the barrel, you know, is it heated from a previous shot? Is it fouled, et cetera? Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously environmental conditions. So those are just me thinking out loud. I'm curious of those, what do you feel again from call it my perspective, a hunter who enjoys shooting and enjoys reloading, but I'm not a ballistician. Like what of those most likely is having the most impact on what I am personally seeing in terms of velocity variability, or is it something else? Yeah. Great question. Well, maybe let's we'll go down that list and, and talk about, talk about each of them in a little more detail. I think that might answer it. So uh, the charge weight one, so it's kind of been well established that if you make your charge weights more consistent, your your result will be more consistent. In this case, velocity variability. Um, that's certainly true, but there's a caveat there as well. Um, if your charge weights are wildly inconsistent, let's say if the charge weight varies by plus or minus 2%, you're certainly going to see uh, some, some immediately negative responses. Your, your variability is going to be bad from the get-go. Um, we've done a pretty substantial amount of testing of, you know, hand weighing to the, to the kernel versus say throwing from a powder measure, you know, which is kind of the, the quick efficient way that, you know, that a reloader or hand loader can, can charge their cases. Um, but it's more gross, right? The the variance in your charge weight is going to be more using that method than it is by hand, you know, trickling to the nearest uh, grain of powder. Um, 
we've seen that the gap between those two isn't quite as big as we used to assume. Um, so an easy way to do that test is to, you know, hand throw a statistically valid sample of charges and then hand weigh those charges and, and do that testing. And you'll see that the hand weighed charges are better for sure. There's no argument there. However, they're probably not better enough to offset the time involved in doing it for the average hunter or recreational shooter, um, where you really start to see that level of performance show itself from a point of impact standpoint, like a capability, you know, am I going to hit the target or miss the target kind of thing is when, when you get downrange to the longer range type stuff. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with hand weighing every one of your charges, making it as perfect as you can get is, is great. Um, but generally you're going to see that, uh, the, the, the perceived gap between hand weighed charges and charges thrown out of a powder measure it, they're, they're closer than you think they are in most cases. Um, now, if you get to, you know, high levels of variation in your charge weight, you're, you're absolutely right that you're going to influence quite a bit of variability from that. The, and that kind of leads into the powder placement. Um, you know, where is the powder within the case? This is a huge one that we really focus on when we design a cartridge is you want the cartridge case to be full of propellant. So if there's airspace in there, it doesn't completely fill it up. You can change where that powder sits, you know, by essentially tipping the rifles, let's say shooting uphill or shooting downhill. Um, and if that, if that propellant is down against the primer, let's say in an uphill shot situation versus down towards the bullet in a downhill shot situation, you can absolutely see very high um, muzzle velocity variation. And this one catches a lot of people by surprise, uh, because most of our shooting in either preparation for a hunt or, or an event or just recreational shooting is done on fairly flat ranges for the most part. And so sometimes people won't know they have this issue because even though they have that airspace in the case, when they're shooting it at relatively flat angles, you know, parallel to the ground, um, there's consistency in that, even though the powder isn't completely filling up the case, it's kind of sitting in the case the same way, shot to shot to shot. And so you don't see that variance start to show up, you know, when you're just out testing your load or preparing for your hunt or your event. And then when you get there and, uh, you have to take a, a high angle uphill or downhill shot and that variance shows up and causes you to miss, there's been many people that have said, well, what's going on? You know, I tested this and everything was great. And now the wheels fell off and I don't understand why. That's, that's one of the things that can happen there. Um, the inconsistent ignition piece, that's a, that's a very critical one. Um, and you're absolutely right that it's tied to the primer. It's tied to the, the primer and the powder as well. Not all primers are equal. Um, just because it's a large rifle primer size and it will fit and, and work in you know a large rifle primed case doesn't mean they're all the same. And you can especially when you add environmental stuff in, I know that was later down in your list, but like cold temperatures, you can get into situations where you combine a certain primer with a certain powder at really cold temperatures where ignition can get a little bit, a little bit sketchy. Uh, things, things can get uh, problematic. So ignition is a huge part of it. Um, how that, that primer and powder interact together. Um, case capacity wise, so we've done, we've done a ton of testing there. And, uh, I did a, I did a test one time where I, <clears throat> I don't know if I've talked about this or not, but I did a test where I said, well, there's these, 
these rules or these things that we follow, let's say where we, we segregate our cases by weight. That's a metric that we can quantify, right? We can weigh our brass. Or you could take it a step further and and uh, measure the internal capacity of each case with water, right? You've heard the water uh, water capacity of a case. Mm-hmm. So those are two metrics that we can we can repeat and we can measure. But what if there was something else going on with the case that made it produce whatever velocity it produced? Something that I couldn't measure. And so I took. Uh, I took a bunch of uh, pieces of brass and I serialized them. I numbered them. And then I measured them every way I possibly could. I did weight and capacity and, and everything that I could do. And then I tested those cases and I shot them in an order where I could correlate you know, the, the results of the test with that specific case. And then I went back and I reloaded those cases and shot them. I shot the, the orders in variation. So maybe the first time I went one through 20, the second time I went 20 down to one and then mixed them, you know, just kind of varied the order around, but I always kept the serialized case number tied to the result. And I saw that it didn't really matter there. There wasn't really any correlation. Now that was in a specific test, you know, with, with specific brass and stuff like that. Um, But it kind of, it kind of threw out the, you know, there's these old, maybe call it wives tales or, or, or we do these things because we've been taught them or we've heard about them and, and we perceive that it would make it better, right? If my brass was, if, if all my brass weighed the same, isn't that better? Well, sure. But the real question is, does all your brass weighing the same correlate to a performance benefit for you? And I think in, in some cases, the answer to that is no. Um, now there's other cases where it's absolutely true. If you're at the shooting range and, uh, you find some brass laying there that somebody left and, and you're going to, to take that brass and inspect it and make sure it's qualified for, for reloading and you reload it, uh, I would definitely look at, at sorting those cases by weight because cartridge cases of different manufacture can have different internal capacities and that, that will change your pressure and velocity. So not only from a safety standpoint of pressure, um, but also just a performance standpoint. So um, maybe that'll help shed some light on the, on the case capacity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then the neck and, and bullet tension, that that's another big one. You know, um, we make neck sized eyes and so do many people out there. And a lot of people do that to control, uh, on their sized brass, how tightly the case neck is holding on to the bullet. Um, and there's a lot of evidence there that you can select a certain combination of those and, and get beneficial results, whether it's velocity or, or dispersion wise. Um, that certainly can be the case. I think you just have to, to test it in a statistically valid and, and honest way to determine that, you know, if, if it's actually doing something. Um, I've done some testing there, <clears throat> kind of similar to that test I just laid out where I, I uh, measured the, the force required to seat the bullet, which is not, you know, necessarily the same thing as the force required for the bullet to come out of the case, but, but uh, didn't see a ton of correlation there, but again, it was all with very consistent stuff from the beginning. If you took very inconsistent components and you segregated them in that way, you would probably see differences in, in performance. But one of the interesting parts there is that how hard the bullet is gripped by the case neck is a, is a really critical part of that internal ballistic cycle. Um, as that bullet starts to move, the the pressure required to get it to move, if that is variable. So if you, if your, your 
neck tension on your bullet is variable, uh, you could expect to see increased velocity variability come from that most most certainly. Um, the the measurement instrumentation like you talked about, absolutely that's that's a big one. Um, and as technology has progressed, we've seen that becomes a little bit less of an issue. You know, if you look at the uh, the chronographs that were, you know, commercially available and very affordable, those two things in combination, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, the amount of error that they had was, was pretty high. Um, so the, the validity of your data had kind of a question mark at the end of it, you know, pretty, pretty sure this is the region that it's in, but, but not being exact, the stuff that we have today, or if you're willing to spend the money on on some of the legacy, more expensive systems like the, the Oler's and stuff like that, or the stuff we have today with like the lab radar and, and the Magneto and some of these other ones, they're, they're definitely better. Um, but you, you're still at the mercy of the instrumentation, you know, and, and you can do things wrong, whether it's the setup of your equipment or how you conduct the test that can skew your results. So that can absolutely play into it. Um, chamber, Chamber dimensions and case expansion, that's certainly playing into it as well. You know, as the as the brass is is um, obturating out, swelling outwards from that pressure of the burning propellant, and that case reaches out and grabs the chamber walls, there's there's energy that is used to do that, right? And that energy that's used to expand the case out to the chamber walls is not energy that's being used to propel the bullet down the barrel. And so it's, it's easily uh, conceivable to think that if you have a lot of variance in the amount of energy that's used to push your, to expand your case out to the chamber wall, that's probably going to correlate to some variance in the velocity of the bullet. Um, the question there is, it, is it uh, eclipsed by something else or not? Is that the main driver? Um, that that kind of gets into the troubleshooting piece of things. Um, the chamber and the barrel conditions uh, absolutely. The, the barrel conditions is a really big one. Um, we've seen that I would say the majority of shooters out there, when they, when they think they're cleaning their barrel, they're, they're not having a ton of effect. And so when we talk about cleaning a barrel, um, as, as you, as you fire a cartridge, you're depositing uh, the burned residue of the powder in the form of carbon, you know, that we typically uh, refer to it as and copper uh, from the bullet jacket being scraped or, or engraved into the rifling, those deposits remain in bore. And as you continue to shoot, those can build up. And, and some listeners will probably be familiar with like a carbon ring that forms in the throat. Um, but all of these things, what they, what they will result in is a change in the, in the in bore conditions. And, as those bore conditions change, you can absolutely get changes to your, your velocity and your pressure as well. And cartridges are not equal there. Some cartridges are very forgiving, meaning that you can shoot them with, with little to no cleaning at all, and they don't foul very badly. They don't deposit a bunch of copper and a bunch of carbon into the barrel and change the internal state of the barrel and, and cause issues where other cartridges it can happen very quickly. And so if you don't maintain those well, you can you can get into problem territory. Um, and then I think your last one was environmental conditions, which the environmental conditions absolutely play into it. So this meaning mainly temperature. 
temperature affects the way the propellant burns. And so depending on the type of propellant you're using and what its chemistry and geometry are, as well as its chemical or um, yeah, its chemical makeup, that powder will burn differently depending on the temperature that it's at. And so you can see, you know, wild velocity swings. Um, you can see big changes in just your average velocity. So if you test all of your stuff at 70 degrees and now the temperature is 20 or 30 degrees out, uh, most powders will experience a drop in velocity there. Some will actually go the opposite way. Sometimes you'll see an increase of velocity at cold. In rifle stuff, it's much more rare. And then the opposite side is true as well. As the temperature increases, you see an increase in velocity. And there's a whole you know variation of stuff that kind of defines that. You can also see, uh, let's say you have a very uh, consistent load at 70 degrees, your extreme spread and standard deviations are very consistent. And then you go to a very cold temperature and the wheels come off and the extreme spread and SD go bananas. So all of, all of that is, is present. So it kind of goes back to when I said, you know, it's all like interconnected and there's so much going on. So it's so hard to nail it down and know exactly which set of combinations you're going to get in this specific cartridge that you're about to pull the trigger on, that's going to result in this velocity produced. It's a lot in there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, it's just, good. I wanted to go down that list kind of in your order. So I was going to say, I'm the one that made the list. It's partially my fault. Uh, oh yeah. Well, we'll I'll, I'll pass the blame on to you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, for people who are like overwhelmed by that or thinking, oh gosh, I have to chase my tail and look at all these 10 or a dozen things they just mentioned or what have you like to bring it back to some level of simplicity mm -hmm. what what's the low-hanging fruit so for again call it me what should i keep my focus on to develop the most effective loads with a reasonably low ESSD or just call it muzzle velocity variability. Like I can't, you know, I'm not a ballistician. I've limited time. I've limited money for components. I've limited everything, right? Mm -hmm. With all those details, what should I actually focus on? Well, let's maybe start at the beginning, which is the decision-making. Uh, great question, by the way. Um, start at the beginning, which is the decision-making process may be about getting a new rifle or cartridge. So if you have the ability to do that, some cartridges are, are prone to having more consistent performance than others. And, uh, you know, you can go out and read about this, you know, generally, you know, the long range shooting community has really exploded in the last 20 years. And there's so much information out there available um, that it, it can become troublesome at times how much information is available. But if you go, you know, you, you just go out and look at, especially in like the competitive circuits, you know, where, where something's on the line, right? You're, you're competing, you've paid money. Um, people are using the equipment they're using in those circles for a very specific reason. And so if I was looking at getting a new rifle or I wanted to try out a new cartridge, I might look to some of those circles just to see maybe what the trends are or what people are doing and, and why, because the, the, the design of the cartridge itself has a hand to play in it. So what I mean by that is not all of them are going to have a default um, 30 foot per second extreme spread and standard deviation of 10. And it's all about, you know, your inputs that influence it from there. That's not how it works. So the cartridge plays into it as well. Now, 
if you've selected a cartridge or you're not getting a new one, you're just dealing with what you already have, the components are the most important part and the quality of those components. So the biggest way to avoid problems is to not have a ton of variability in your components. And that may mean, you know, if you're going to scrounge range brass uh, to, to save some money and have some stuff to shoot, there's nothing wrong with that at all, but it's probably not going to give you as good a performance as if you would have used the same batch of the same lot of brass from a given manufacturer. Um, selecting propellants that have a reputation for very consistent performance. Again, you're going to find that in the in the long range shooting world because that's where all this stuff. I want to say it matters the most, but I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that in a way that the levels of performance that that are required to succeed don't allow the bad stuff to exist in those realms. So if you go consult or you go look at what the what the long-range shooting communities are using for propellant, it's probably a pretty good bet that if you use that, you would have pretty consistent results because you have to have consistency to be successful in those games. When it comes to the projectile itself, um, the projectile can definitely play into it. Um, it it certainly has a hand, you know, in uh, in that internal ballistic cycle, and uh, certain projectiles are going to interact differently with the propellant and with the barrel and the chamber and all that stuff. So, the biggest thing is try to get try to get enough of the same stuff that you have consistent components from the get go. Try not to feed it. Oh, I got you know one pound of this powder. So I'm going to load this for a while and, oh, I ran out of bullets. So I'm going to keep using that powder and switch to a different bullet. And, you know, that kind of game that I think all of us play to varying degrees, just because of the, the cost savings and the, and the, you know, we just have stuff laying around that you want to use, you know, those stragglers from the last set of stuff you loaded or whatever it may be. So consistent components is king. If, if you, if you start with consistent components, your chances of getting a, a very good and consistent result are much higher. Yeah, that's helpful. It's, um, that's been my experience of trying to do research with a cartridge that's known to be a, a good performer and then to just look for good starting points and, and data and research, both with projectile choice. And like you said, like pro- the propellant, the powder you're using, and then obviously the, the range of that charger weight mm-hmm. and just trying to not read something once, but to try and find that again, right? From a different yeah. place, from a different source and go, okay, I've now seen four people in different places, perhaps different styles of shooting who said that this powder for this cartridge with this general weight range of bullet is a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me do my own testing verification. But I've just found that when you do that research and then begin to do your own work, it cuts down your work tremendously. And it's often actually really simple to, to find something that's very effective. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Be wary of, uh, you know, the internet post you read of the guy that says he's got his SDs at two and this thing shoots a quarter minute at, at two miles, you know, that, that might not be the guy you want to listen to, you know, you might, or you might want to ask that guy some questions and just say, Hey, can, how often have you done that? Did it happen just one time or is that thing really that good where it does it every single time? Those would be some uh, important questions to, to ask. And also um, reach out to manufacturers. You know, we have a, we have a technical service department here staffed with a bunch of guys that are very knowledgeable and they help people out with those kind of things all the time and other manufacturers as well, you know, bullet manufacturers, powder manufacturers, 
call those guys up and say, Hey, this is kind of what I'm looking at doing. You know, what do you think? Cause you know, they're kind of the experts. They've spent a ton of time with it. So definitely use all the resources at your disposal. I want to go back to some of the points that we touched on in that kind of that list that I made and ask you some kind of specific follow-ups with call them very practical examples or scenarios. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So inconsistent charge weight. So if I am using uh, like I use an RCBS, you know, powder dispenser measure, right? Mm-hmm. If I see and say, like I shoot seven psalm a lot, and a lot of times my charge weights can be around 59, 60 grains. Okay. If I see that overthrow and it's 60.1 instead of 60 was my desired target, right? And let's say I'm loading 40 rounds. Mm-hmm. Charge number 13 throws 60.1 instead of 60. Personally, I always dump that and rethrow it to get 60. Mm-hmm. Is that a giant waste of time? N- not at all. If, uh, if it, you know, you'll, uh, let me think for a sec on how to put this the most efficient way. Um, you're never going to have a negative thing happen by making things more consistent. Are you guaranteed to have a good thing happen from doing that, not necessarily. And what I mean by that is that all those charge weights that are exactly 60 and one of them is 60.1, I would say the chances of that one charge weight that's 60.1 being the outlier of all those, it's it's the furthest one away out of all those is very unlikely. That's a pretty small change though. You know, that's a, if you told me that, I had them all at 60 and then one of them was at 61 or 61 and a half. I could, I could expect that one to be the outlier, but that's such a minor, you know, a minor amount, you know, that's less than 1%. You know, if, if 1% would be, you know, uh, six, you know, six tenths of a grain, you're well inside that window. And so, uh, I totally understand though, the fact that that's in your head. Now, if you didn't Mm -hmm. throw that one out and you loaded it, it's in the back of your head. And especially if you didn't like mark that one, so you know, which one it was, you know, maybe you used it as just like a cider or a fowler or something like that. And that, that one is just lurking, you know, randomly somewhere within this batch of perfect ammo, the mental games that can play with you. I would say it's totally worth pouring that sucker out and making it exactly 60.0. Yeah. Um, but maybe to answer that question in a different way, when when I um, when I load my match ammo, sometimes what I will do is I shoot a lot of long distance field matches, um, like the, the NRL Hunter and the PRS and stuff like that. And generally, what I do because most targets at those matches are you know 800 and in, but there's going to be a handful of them that are kind of kind of long ball targets, right? So generally, what I do, let's say I'm loading 200 rounds for one of those matches. I will load, let's say, 100 to 150 rounds by throwing them from the powder measure because the amount of variance that comes from doing that essentially isn't going to show itself as a major problem inside of you know six to 800 yards. The, the time of flights of the bullet aren't really long enough for the velocity variability caused by that to be very problematic. Now, this is all based on doing a bunch of testing to quantify this, you know, is that level of variation acceptable or not? It's not just a whimsical choice. It's it's based on data. But then with my remaining 50, you know, 50 or so rounds, 
I will, I will do exactly what you're talking about doing. I'll make them all exactly 60.0. And what I will do is I will selectively pull those boxes out when I need them. It's almost like a golf style approach where you have different club off options, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to fine tune a certain shot or whatever. And I'm not a golfer really. So if I screwed up any of those analogies from the golf community, I apologize, but um, but I'll pull those special perfect boxes out when I really need that level of performance. Um, but the reason I do that is because of the value of time, right? It, the cost to me of hand weighing out every single one of those things may be too much. It's not worth that. I can get away with just throwing them from a powder measure. There's some matches I shoot where I do hand weigh every single one of them. When I go, when I go on my hunts, if I'm not shooting a factory load, I do that. I'll, I'll, because there's a lot on the line on a hunt. You know, you've invested a lot of money and time and, and just many cases you only get one shot at it. And so having everything as perfect as possible, I have no issue with that. So on the, we talked about inconsistency of powder placement within the cartridge case. Um, you talked about shooting uphill, downhill, basically essentially how concentrated is the powder towards the primer, towards the ignition source. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's related to, as we said, case fill ratio, which a lot of times you can find some data for, especially in like a, a reloading manual. A lot of times it'll show you case fill ratio. Yep. Do you, again, I know we can get into nuance of everything, but do you like from a, a high level avoid certain case fill ratios? You know, if like you see some data and it's like, oh, this is only going to be 80 to 85%, but it is a reputable, like well-known, good performing powder, but maybe it's a lower case fill for this specific cartridge. Would you automatically look to something with a higher case fill ratio? Not necessarily. Um, if, if I was concerned about it, I would test it and see, uh, you know, is the amount of variation that that's going to cause me going to be concerning? Is it going to lower my chances of success because of that amount of variation it adds to it? I, I would want to test it. So from a blanket blanket answer standpoint, um, if I'm concerned, you know, I, I, I seat the bullet um, on, on the first load and I pick that thing up and I kind of shake it by my ear and I hear, wow, there's a lot of space in there. And on the next one, before I seat the bullet, I really kind of look down in the case and see where the powder level is. Maybe I even stick something down in there to kind of measure the depth of it. And then I then I hold it up on the side, you know, so I can see how far down on the outside of the case the powder would be. And then I hold my bullet up about where I'm going to seat it. I say, boy, there's a lot of airspace left in that case. Then if I have any question at all, I'm going to test it. And I'm not necessarily do you have to shoot it uphill, downhill. You know, if you don't have uh, those type of shooting environments available to you, but maybe you're going to be using that ammo in those environments, you know, say you're in the Midwest and you're going on a Western hunt, um, I will do that testing by, you know, chambering, uh, chambering the round in the rifle and to do the, the powder down or the downhill, you know, part, I'll, I'll put the muzzle down towards the ground and shake the rifle, kind of get that powder down towards the bullet and then very slowly and gradually raise it and put it on the bench where I have to fire kind of flat fire, you know, with, with really no angle to the shot mm-hmm. and then do the same thing in the opposite direction. Um, chamber, obviously be very safe, right. As you're, mm-hmm. as you're doing this. Um, but then do the opposite and, and point the muzzle up, kind of shake the rifle. So the propellant settles down by the primer and then very gradually laying that thing over. Uh, it's not a perfect test. It's not going to be exactly like it is when you actually shoot uphill or downhill, but it'll give you an idea of if those sensitivities are, are there or not. It's better than nothing. That's helpful. Um, 
different topic. Well, related, but different. <laughs> we talked about inconsistent ignition and you said specifically about, you know, not all primers being equal. Um, just because it's a large primer doesn't mean it's going to perform the same with a certain powder combination, et cetera. What do you feel is a helpful way, again, call it me, for me to test this? So if I already, let's say I already have like a relatively established load. Mm-hmm. How would you suggest if I have two or three other primer options available mm-hmm. that I do some testing to give me a good enough sample size? Like you guys have talked a lot about sample size in your podcast, but essentially how would you recommend for someone like me to do primer testing mm-hmm. on different primer types? Uh, what would that look like? So that would just look like doing two comparative samples, you know, loading up, uh, let's say your, your seven SOM example where you're running 60 grains of powder is kind of that perfect load that you found. Um, or maybe it's not perfect. You didn't say that. Is that a good load? I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. I was, was some, for this question, I'm assuming I have an established load, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, for that, for seven SOM, it's often around 60 grains with what I've been shooting. Yeah. So, so what I would do in that circumstance, considering that everything has a cost, right? Your time, your components, every time you pull the trigger, you're, you're spending money, you know, that you don't get that bullet and powder back. So um, with that considered, if let's say I was starting to run low on my stash of this primer that I've been using successfully for a long time and, and availability wise, all that was available was this other primer that I've never used anymore. And I want to determine is this primer going to change the performance that I've come to expect of this old established load? With that in mind, what I would start with is uh, probably 10 of each of them. So I would take 10 of my established load and 10 of the established load with this new primer and shoot those 10 side by side. And I would I would make some initial looks at that that are very basic. I would not stop at 10 and say it's better or worse than from an extreme spread or standard deviation standpoint. I would look at those two and see, you know, is the, is the extreme spread on one of them, you know, on, on my old established load is the extreme spread, uh, 22 foot per second on 10 shots. And the extreme spread of the other one is 150. There might be something going on there. I might repeat that test again, but let's say that both of them at 10 shots had an extreme spread of, you know, 20 to 25 and the standard deviation was eight to 10. What I would do then is do another set of 10 and see what it does at 20. The, the statistical stuff starts to get stable when you get past sample sizes of 20. So at a bare minimum, I would do 20. If I really wanted to, to have a higher level of confidence in, in being certain that this other primer wasn't going to be a problem, I would try to get to 30 or maybe more. And at the same time that I did that, I would be, you know, verifying my dispersion. You know, did this change my dispersion at all? Is my point of impact still good? You could you could do that testing when you're just out recreationally shooting or or you know, checking your your um, trajectory information or whatever it is. You can kind of double those things up so that you're not simply laying down with only a chronograph and it's costing you you know, all of that time, money, and investment just to get a velocity number, try to get more out of it than just that. Um, but that's how I would look at it. And, and if the, if the extreme spread and, and SD, uh, mainly the SD on, on the higher sample size stuff was a lot worse or a lot better, 
then I can make that call that, hey, this primer seems to affect things in this way. Um, most of the time in my experience, I've seen that with good quality powder bullets and primers, um, that it, the primer doesn't influence things quite as much as, as we like to think. It certainly can, but in most cases, I, I, I think that uh, we give it more weight than it's worth. Now, where things can go sour is when the temperature changes. So if I had that existing load you have, let's say you've used it in, in, you know, warm conditions and also in very cold conditions and you've never had any problems, everything's been great and very stable. This new primer that comes along, you test it at kind of warm, you know, just ambient conditions, you know, 50 to 80 degrees, you know, just kind of a nice day out. And it performs just as well as your old legacy primer you've been using. I would want to then test that primer at cold temperatures or hot temperatures, depending on what I was going to use it for, to make sure that the introduction of that additional variable of, of environmental temperature isn't going to cause things to go crazy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. It's rare that it does, but it certainly, it, it can happen. Okay. We've skipped over this. I somewhat left it out intentionally, but definitely wanted to get to it at some point. Um, talking about ES and SD specifically, obviously as it relates to muzzle, um, muzzle velocity and variability, what do you consider to be relatively acceptable for, e for each of those numbers? Um, again, for call it quote unquote me and to put more parameters on that. Like, let's say we have someone listening who they're relatively serious about shooting. They're still primarily a hunter. They're trying to stretch their range a little bit. And they're looking to say like a number I see thrown out a lot these days is to be 600 yard capable, um, okay. which is a far shot on game. Mm -hmm. um, it takes intention. It takes practice. Not everyone can nor should attempt that. But let's say we have someone who wants that. Sure. What type of ESSD numbers should be, you know, quote unquote, acceptable if their goal would be to shoot at big game out to 600 yards? And again, I'm only talking about ES and SD, not the larger topics of should they, what type of setup do they have, et cetera. But as it relates to ES and SD, what, Absolutely. what should they be looking at? Yeah, good, good question. So the first thing um, that we need to discuss is maybe what are those two for some listeners that have heard them but aren't certain what they are. Um, the simple explanation I like to give is extreme spread is a measurement of how bad was it it's a past tense measurement. So meaning that let's say you laid down and you shot, uh, you know, 10 shots or 20 shots or whatever it was, the extreme spread tells you what is the distance from the furthest to apart? What are the extreme limits of what you recorded? And the, the critical parts of those statements are the past tense use of those words was and were. The standard deviation is a statistical tool that allows you to predict, uh, make make inferences about what the population actually is. So when we take a sampling, we shoot 10 or 20 shots to, to see what's going on, you know, to kind of see what our variability is. We're taking a sampling. With standard deviation, if that velocity data follows a standard bell curve, a Gaussian bell curve, you know, most listeners will have heard of that. I think we all catch that at some point in middle or, middle or high school, you know, that bell curve shaped thing. Um, what standard deviation says is that if your data follows that, which velocity variability does, we've recorded that on many, many different occasions. Um, so you don't have to go prove that one to yourself. You know, I'll, I'll tell you from here that it, it does follow a, a bell curve. 
what the standard deviation does is allows you to make predictions about what's going to happen as you continue to shoot or, or measure that population even further than you already have. So if your SD is 10, just to make an easy number, what that means is that uh, about 68% of the time, your muzzle velocities are going to fall between plus or minus 10 from your average. So if you measure all those velocities and your average comes out at 2,700 and your SD is 10, what that means is that 60, so let's say seven out of 10 shots are going to be between 2690 and 2710. If you go plus or minus two standard deviations, that encompasses about 95% of what's going to happen. So a little over nine times out of 10, your velocity is going to be between 2680 and 2720. And then if you go plus or minus three, you've essentially encompassed the whole thing, the whole thing of possibility. You're at like 99.7%. So, you know, 9.997 times out of 10, your velocity is going to be between 2670 and 2730. And so that kind of tells you a story, right? You can kind of start to understand, okay, well, if I know this is going to happen seven out of 10 times, I can kind of bet on it a little bit. Or if it's going to happen nine and a half out of 10 times, I can bet on it, bet on it even stronger, right? That, that's kind of what that tool gives you. So to answer the question about the guy that's interested in what his capabilities are out to 600, he needs to run a ballistics calculator and see how much velocity variation can he, can he handle and, and not miss the vital zone because of it. So what I would do there is say, you know, let's just say a vital zone is a, I don't know what, a 10 inch circle, just to, just to give it a number um, as a common game animal vital area, say on an elk. So what that means is if we aim at the center of that vital area, we can make a five inch mistake and still hit the vital circle, right? So we have five inches to work with. What I would do in that case is I would go and run a ballistics calculator and see um, you know, you can run it with your hundred yard zero or whatever you're doing and go look at 600 yards. And let's say that I run, uh, I run my average muzzle velocity and at 600 yards, the thing tells me that the bullet is dropping 50 inches just for an easy number. And then I recorded my velocities cause I shot my, my, you know, uh, my test, I would recommend you shoot, you know, at least 20 to get a statistically, because that standard deviation thing, I'm going to back up here for a sec. Mm -hmm. That standard deviation number is only valuable if you have a large enough sample size that you've started to kind of form that bell curve a little bit. So the, the standard deviation that your, your, your chronograph gives you after five shots is actually kind of useless. It, it doesn't tell you a whole lot. You have to get a bigger sample size for standard deviation to become predictable. And you can prove that to yourself by shoot that ammo, you know, shoot three or four or five shot groups at that ammo. And usually the standard deviation will be different. Now it's, it's possible if this stuff is really high performance that you, you, you get a really low SD from the get go. But my recommendation would be, if you want to know for certain, and you don't want to wound this elk, shoot at least 20 of them to get your standard deviation. So now, now back to the ballistic calculator thing. Mm -hmm. So we put in the average velocity, we run it and it tells us we're going to hit uh, 50 inches low at 600 yards. Okay. So we write that down 50 inches. And we know with that standard deviation rule that uh, seven out of 10 times, I'm going to be minus one plus one. So maybe I'll take that calc the ballistics calculator and take my muzzle velocity and increase it by the number of that standard deviation. Let's say it's 10 run the calculator. And now it says, 
uh, you're going to hit at 48 inches, right? So it's going to hit with two inches less drop because it's going faster. And then you do the opposite of that and you drop it 10 foot per second from the average and you run it again. And now it says you're going to hit at 52 inches. You can start to see now how that's telling you a story about how the velocity is going to affect you. So seven out of 10 times, you're going to be plus or minus two inches. You're well within the vital size of that elk. So seven out of 10 times your velocity variability that this system has is not going to cause you to miss the elk. But if you go to one more bracket out, like we said, plus or minus two standard deviations, so plus 20 foot, minus 20 foot, now you might start to see that you're reaching the limits or you've gone past it. You know, maybe now it's, it's a 12 inch difference. Well, your vital size is 10 inches. So nine and a half out of 10 times, you're not fully, not every one of them is going to be in there. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's, that's what I'd recommend a guy do. Cause you'll hear people that make a blanket recommendation, like, oh, your SD has to be this to, you know, to do this or that. Well, that's, that's all good and well, but it's not being very precise and honest. And, and the honest way to go about it is to go run those numbers and see what your actual limitations are. That That's what I do for myself uh, to find out, you know, where's my line in the sand? Where, where can I ethically take this animal? You know, what's that max distance? Cause I want to know that when I'm, when I'm out hunting and I want to make sure that I engage that animal inside of that distance. Yeah. There's so much good in there. What you said about like sample size, cause again, basing that like SDs off three or five shot groups is essentially irrelevant. Um, but then it's also just helping to put parameters around good or acceptable or like, as you said, like people talk about, Oh, that's a good SD. And it's like, well, good for what? Exactly. Maybe maybe it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah. You know, maybe it matters a lot. I don't know. Uh, you know, and even back to like what you were saying with the ballistics calculator, it, it's not, you have to piece together the whole picture because it's not just the SD, it's the SD for your velocity window for the bullet you're shooting, right? Because a, a bullet with a different BC is going to have a different downrange result, even if the muzzle velocity and SD started the same, for example, right? You're so, exactly right. Yeah, that's one step. So, yeah, that's a good point. Listeners, don't go just do this test with your chronograph, shoot 20, get your SD, run these numbers and say, oh, I'm good on elk out to 600 because you know those limits are within the vital size. That's just one piece. What gets added on top of that is the normal dispersion of the gun, your aiming error as a shooter, the environmental mm-hmm. variation, the drag variation of the bullet, all that blows that capability up. So you're just looking at one little piece and velocity is one of you know, five to six different things that influence why the bullet goes where it goes. It's an important one, but it's only one. That's why I think at the, like the big picture, I, uh, like I look at uh, this whole conversation, honestly, as one example, but topics like this, the, the depth at which we can talk about ballistics, Mm -hmm. I look at it really wanting to know all of the details and understand the process. Like it was fun for me to sit down and think through, okay, we're going to talk about velocity variability to my understanding, what can affect that. And so it was fun for me to go through that list that we talked about. Yeah. At the same time, it's also helpful me for me to come back to you. Okay. What really matters? What really doesn't matter? Cause on one hand, it's really important to keep things simple and to understand what actually matters. But then on the other hand, for guys who are serious about 
potentially shooting game at 600 yards, for example, I think we really do need to understand what we're doing and like what we're up against and how all the variables really do matter. And if you don't, you don't understand all the, all the intersections of everything that's happening and what that means downrange, mm-hmm. then I don't, you know, aside from practice, aside from your capabilities behind the gun and pulling the trigger, like you need to understand all the big picture what isn't isn't relevant and how that really really dictates what you can do downrange yeah and i i would view it i i think that it's our responsibility to do that yeah not not only in relation to the animal that we're trying to harvest and, and the respect for that animal but for the future generations of hunters mm-hmm. you know there there's nothing worse than the the black eye the hunting community gets from some guy that takes a shot that far exceeds his capabilities and, and, you know, the worst happens, he wounds an animal or something. I mean, that's a, that's a horrible circumstance. And the responsibility of that lies not only in the individual in under, in, in actually being honest and defining what their capabilities are and hunting within those capabilities. But also I think the shooting community or the hunting community at large, you know, we, there's an extent there where we have to police our own and mm-hmm. say, Hey, have you done your homework? Have you checked all this stuff and and done the testing in a, in a, in a valid manner that says, yes, you're going to be successful in doing this. Um, I think, think all too often. And, and I understand why we don't, you know, we're so excited to get out there and do it. And and you may only have one opportunity and you've invested so much time and money in the, the pull or desire to, I, I just have to take this shot. It's the only one I have to have the the responsibility and the maturity to know when and when not to take that shot. I, I think we have a lot of room to grow there as a hunting community. Yeah, for sure. Do you have five more minutes, Jaden? Absolutely. Okay. I want to take a left turn. Um, we'll put a cap on velocity variability. We didn't answer every question, but I love that discussion. I think there's a lot to, to think about there. I have not listened to all of the podcasts that you guys put out, but I, I listened to part of a recent one. It was up of episode 57 when you guys were talking about dispersion. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I wanted to ask you a couple questions because you guys were talking about dispersion, many facets, but for a few minutes, you talked about short barrels mm-hmm. um, and things like ejecta and the trade-offs of short barrels. Mm-hmm. I I'm curious to ask a couple follow-ups there. So one, as it relates to a bolt action hunting rifle, what is a short barrel? And at what point do the potential downsides, and you can clarify what those were in terms of things like ejecta, begin to potentially take effect in a quote unquote short barrel. And to give it some parameters, what I would say is obviously Historically, we see a lot in the 24 to 26 inch barrel range. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, historically with shooting suppressed, things like that, things are getting shorter and shorter. I, for example, have an 18 and a 20 and a 22 inch barrel. Um, So let's say the extreme ends of like, would you consider an 18 inch barrel a, a quote unquote short barrel that has the potential downsides of what you can explain with ejecta and the effects on dispersion and things like that? Or are you talking much shorter of like a seven inch AR, for example? Sure. That's a great question. And there's a, there's a whole spectrum uh, to that response, you know, uh, like the, the generic question of, well, is an 18 inch barrel too short? Well, uh, for a nine millimeter, no, 
you know, that would be extremely long, you know, mm-hmm. um, for a 50 BMG. Yeah. It's reasonable to, to kind of view that as probably being on the, on the short side of the spectrum. Um, but what do we know for certain that is happening? Absolutely. Uh, undeniably, when you start cutting the barrel shorter, you're going to affect that internal ballistic cycle, right? You, you can't not, um, when, when you cut the barrel shorter, you are guaranteeing that the bullet is going to come out of the muzzle exposed to higher gas pressure. Now this is within reason, right? I think in that podcast, I said, you know, if you, if you have a 40 inch barreled 308 and you cut it down to 38 inches, probably not going to be a huge change in the amount of, you know, gas pressure behind the bullet when it comes out. Um, but within the stuff that we're talking about here, you know, common barrel lengths, as you cut that barrel length back, you're giving the propellant less time to burn out and the pressure that that is behind the bullet when the bullet comes out of the barrel will be higher. I mean, by nature of the system, that's how it works. Now, the question is, is that short enough to cause problems? That's a harder one to answer because it depends on a whole bunch, excuse me, a whole bunch of different types of variables, mainly the cartridge and the load that's being shot uh, and, and that specific barrel length. And so, you know, is 18 inches too short on, let's say a seven song, you know, that cartridge that, that we were talking about earlier of yours. Um, well, my answer to that would be, well, if you cut the barrel that short, do you see a loss in, in, you know, consistency of your velocity? Do your variabilities get worse? Do you see your group sizes open up? Do you see your muzzle flash gets a lot worse unsuppressed? And if it does, do you use the suppressor? Because the suppressor now hides that from your view, but it's still happening on the inside. And that's an indication of a lot of unburnt propellant. And so the, the true answer to that question is, well, it really kind of depends. And uh, there are cases where you can cut a barrel shorter and you don't see an increase in, in dispersion. That, that absolutely can happen. In general, though, you're hedging your bets towards starting to see it. Uh, in, in general, the the cutting of the barrel back is going to result in increased group size, increased velocity variability at some point. And maybe 18 inches isn't that point with that cartridge and that load, but maybe 16 is, or maybe 14 is. So unfortunately there's no hard line in the sand or rule that says this is too short for this. You know, um, I mean, there, there certainly is on the extremes, right? A, a two inch barrel 300 wind mag, probably isn't going to work very well, you know, so you can go to those extremes where things become certain, but unfortunately that's not where we exist. We kind of exist and want, you know, we desire barrel lengths that are kind of in that, that gray area where it could or could not have a negative effect. If that kind of answers it. No, it does. Would you say that, um, in general, there's a relationship between barrel length and then case capacity, right? As in, in terms of obviously a larger case capacity cartridge, you know, think mm-hmm. bigger magnum, more powder paired with a shorter barrel, potentially less time to burn all that powder. Sure. Therefore, you're going to have more ejecta, more influence on the on the bullet, more gas pressure, et cetera. So are those two kind of call it at odds with each other? I, I think that's a great way to, you know, that's that's a great generic way to, to look at it, you know, what is the case capacity? How much powder is this thing using? You know, you look at the, you look at the pistol world and you see that evolution kind of in a, in a mirrored form, right? You see, uh, what do you see in the super short barreled pistols that are out there? 380s, nine millimeters, 
When you get to 40s and 45s, typically the barrels are a little bit longer than the shortest available, you know, 380s and 9 millimeters. Well, you've you've doubled your charge weight when you went from 9 millimeter to 45, and then you go into say 10 millimeter and 357 and stuff. You've now you know tripled or maybe even quadrupled in some cases your charge weight from where you were with the 9 millimeter. But look at the barrel lengths that are associated with those. How many two inch barrel you know 357 magnums are out there compared to you know six to eight inch barreled guns. So you, you can see that progression from that end of it. And the same thing occurs on the rifle side. You know, let's look at the kind of the other extreme end of that, say, a uh, you know, a 50 BMG is going to use over 200 grains per cartridge, a 338 Lapua is up in the high nineties. You know, you don't see those being offered by Glock, right. For, for that specific reason. So looking at those two extremes kind of gives you some insight into making those calls about that gray middle area, you know, all right, this is a, this is a a Magnum rifle cartridge that's burning 80, 90 grains of powder. Um, I've successfully shot, you know, these kind of medium cartridges that burn like 40 to 50 grains of powder in an 18 inch barrel. I've, I've done that successfully. Should I take that 80 or 90 grain charge weight Magnum and take it straight to 18? Maybe not. You know, maybe I should stick with that 20 to 22, just, you know, basic reason on how much more charge weight that thing has. Uh, that that type of thought process would, would be beneficial for sure. It's not how it works. However, there's enough correlation there that I think you can make some some decent judgment calls about about what you're looking for. You mentioned a suppressor in there, and that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. would would a suppressor so if there's a downside to this this pressure and ejecta unburnt powder etc out of a short barrel does a suppressor only mask that or can it actually help it meaning in my head does the chamber of the suppressor capture any of this ejecta or unburnt powder or you know extra gases and actually help or is it only just masking the the symptom if that makes sense i think probably both um could it help uh probably depending on how the the gas is controlled uh, by the you know the baffles in the suppressor or the the initial blast baffler if it's a muzzle brake assisted suppressor um that that certainly could help um, it could also do the opposite and hurt where if those gases are not handled in a symmetrical way, I know we talked about that on that episode 57 of the dispersion podcast, that if you have more gas, or more gas pressure on one side of the bullet than the other, it can kind of kick that bullet sideways. You could think of it as, um, and that's going to get worse if your barrel is shorter. That's one of the reasons why you see, um, you know, really short barrels, not shoot quite the level of dispersion that longer barrels will on average is because of that. Now, the fact that it's hiding it from you could be a bad thing too, because I've seen suppressors that have blown up because they've loaded up with so much unburnt propellant that eventually the thing goes and it, and it ruptures the suppressor. Um, so that could be a negative side of it. So, you know, if you were shooting with a bare muzzle and that, that, uh, increased muzzle blast and, and getting smacked, the, the base of the bullet getting smacked with unburnt propellant grains was causing, say, dispersion issues or whatever. Could you put a suppressor on it and, and help that? Possibly. Um, 
but you're also now putting on a, a catch for all of that. And you could have a catastrophic failure at some point, not saying any of that's absolute that, that it will happen, but it certainly could. I have observed it. Yeah. And for people who are hearing that, and that's a new concept, as you said, the design of the suppressor matters, the volume of the suppressor matters and suppressor manufacturers should have published uh, limits to do not use the suppressor at a barrel length less than X for a certain family of cartridge, for example. Um, yep. Like I've, I shoot Thunderbeast suppressors primarily, and I know that that's a published like, hey, if you're shooting, you know, again, a seven SOM with this model of suppressor, you need to use a barrel length of, you know, 18 or greater, for example. And again, I'm making up those numbers, but that is something that you should be able to reference, at least from that safety perspective of the manufacturing and design perspective of that particular suppressor. Sure. Yep. I agree. All right. Last one. Can you, or should you change your powder selection to achieve the best results in a shorter barrel? So, you know, I've seen talk of this of like, Ooh, if you're shooting this cartridge, this is a good powder, but if you want to do it in a short barrel, like here's the powder for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, is that theory? Is that, practical is a faster burning powder going to help you burn in that shorter barrel length for example and you'll have less unburnt powder just talk about those ideas a little bit sure yeah i would say in in general that if i was going to a shorter barrel length i would look at the faster end of the powder spectrum that was applicable for that combination um now is that the only driver absolutely not so what i mean by that is you could have a short barrel and as I just said, in general, a faster powder would, would, would possibly produce a better result. You could have a slower powder produce a better result than the faster powder does in that barrel because of other reasons about the barrel, because the barrel length isn't the only part that's playing into that. You know, there's so many other things going on in that internal ballistic cycle. So I would, I would caveat that with in general, I would expect it to, and I have seen it do that where with shorter barrels going to a little bit of a faster burn rate of powder, which by default causes you re to reduce your charge weight down a little bit. Um, so I don't know which one of those two it is, you know, is it the, that the burn rate is faster or is it that because the burn rate is faster, you have to reduce your charge weight down. Therefore, you know, there's less massive powder for you to try to burn out. I don't know which, I don't know if the, the, tails wagging the dog on that one or which way it goes for, <laughs> for certain. That's another one that keeps me up at night. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, in general, I would say that would be a good practice. That's something I would do. You know, maybe I would shoot uh, my existing load to establish a baseline, uh, especially if it's a cartridge that I have experience with, I would certainly do that. So then I kind of have a, a level of expectation, right? I've been shooting this load out of a longer barrel for a very long time and it kind of does this. And then I, I decide I'm going to go to a shorter barrel. So I get that barrel and I test that same old standby legacy load. And, you know, my, my level of dispersion increased, you know, let's say it doubled just to throw a number out. Well, that kind of tells me, well, there's something going on. I can't necessarily say it's the barrel length that did it because this is a different barrel and all barrels are different. Um, so there may be something else going on, but then maybe I try a little bit of a faster powder um, in, in that same bullet case combination. And I see, oh yeah, that, that made a positive uh, improvement with this shorter barrel. Um, that, that's definitely something I've done before. 
Well, I feel like that's a good place to end. I feel like we came full circle, Jaden, with starting about what keeps you up at night and ending with something that you said still keeps you up at night a little bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> and just talking about um, the unknowns, right? Like, as sure. you said in the beginning, each shot is unique and you can't go back in time. It's a consumed good. That bullet has left. We can try and recreate it, but this next one's going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I feel like we came full circle in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, I'm kind of glad that it's that way because the mysteries are still out there. You know, we're still in pursuit of the, the best set of combinations for this rifle, or we're still trying to figure this out or, or that out. And to me, that's, that's what it's all about, you know, is, is that's where the experience comes from. So uh, hopefully, hopefully the listeners maybe picked up some cool new info and, and have some new stuff to go try. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I seriously appreciate you taking the time um, before I do let you go. Just again, share the Hornady podcast where people can find it or any other resources you would point people to. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the Hornady podcast is, I think, on pretty much like all the main podcasting apps. Um, a lot of the ballistic series ones that I mentioned earlier, uh, they have visual aids with them. So you can consume them audio only, but uh, if you can get on you know, YouTube and watch them, it'll probably help a lot more. Um, and then, you know, our, our website or, or, or give us a call. If you have a question at our, at our tech department, we're here to help. So excellent. Well, thank you. You bet. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's a wrap for this one, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jaden. We also recently had Seth from Hornady on the show in episode 393, so check that out. And if you're enjoying these types of conversations, definitely check out the Hornady podcast as well. As always, we appreciate your support. We don't do any advertising or anything like that for this show, so it helps us grow by just you telling a friend, leaving a rating or review, or anything like that that you can do to help would be tremendously appreciated. And if you have any questions for us, just send an email to podcasts at xmontgear.com. We'd love to help you out or include your question in a future Q&A episode or maybe even do a full episode deep dive on a topic that you want to hear about. So let us know. Finally, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.